0: Hello and welcome to Montana Classical College. Today I'm joined again by Mr. Bolingbroke and we are going to tie a bow on our series of uh, conversations on Shakespeare's King Lear. Today we will be talking about Act 5. Bolingbroke, how are you?
1: I am excellent. How do you do today?
0: Oof, I'm doing well. Um, There's no thunder and lightning outside today. But maybe that's a good sign. I don't. I don't think there's any thunder and lightning in the act officially, like there was in previous. Uh, maybe in Act Three, so there doesn't need to be a correspondence always between one's natural environment and what's going on in the play. But it's nice when there is.
1: There's there's cracks in in nature herself, but not in uh, in nature's weather in this scene. So so it's we those cracks are are internal within the soul.
0: Yeah, that's right. That's right. That that is where they are. Uh. Good. So maybe I'll offer, as we've done before, a very brief summary, briefer than usual, I think. And maybe that's fitting for this act. And then Bolingbroke, as usual, will add anything that seems to be left out. So act five is is divided into three scenes. Two of these scenes are very brief. Uh, And the third one is a little bit longer. So in the first scene, uh, you could sort of say that battle is about to be joined. Albany and Edmund lead the English forces against the French forces. And we see that the sisters uh, are kind of arguing, almost openly arguing about who's going to wind up with Edmund, um, which obviously involves a lot more deviousness if Goneril does. Um, In Act 5, Scene 2, the French army loses. Uh, There might be more to say about that, but in Act 5, Scene 2, the French army loses. In Act 5, Scene 3, there's a lot of death. Um, Lear and and Cordelia are imprisoned. Albany confronts Edmund um, after he's been given a note by Edgar saying that Edmund is a treacherous person. Uh, Edgar fights Edmund and mortally wounds him, although Edmund is bleeding on stage for a long time, Um, and although he eventually dies. We hear about Gloucester dying. Regan dies because she was poisoned by Goneril. Goneril commits suicide. Cordelia is killed because of Edmund's treachery and King Lear kills the man who was killing Cordelia. And then King Lear himself, the titular character uh, dies. Mr. Bolingbroke, would you add anything else to to the summary?
1: I think that covers it. It's, 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 I think one of the shorter acts too. Um, Mm Mm-hmm. It's it's not only short, but all of the action. I mean, you get like in the previous act, you have like Gloucester's false suicide and Edgar's various different characters. There's there's just a lot more subtlety in the different things going on here. I feel like we get a lot of consummation of, you know, a lot of a lot of threads get tied off, and. There's some satisfaction in the question of justice and also some questions that are that are raised. But it all is, this is a very conclusionary act, which is not always the case in Shakespeare, but in Lear, it does seem to be the case.
0: Mm-hmm. Right, right. Good. So I think both of us were struck by um, a line in Act 5, Scene 1, where Goneril says something to the effect of if the English lose to the French, that would be fine in a way if she winds up with Edmund in the end that and, um, yeah so wh- what do you what do you make? oh she says I had rather lose the battle than that sister should loosen him, that is to say Edmund and me. So she would rather lose the battle the, the English lose against the French. Rather than her Goneril losing Edmund to Regan, what what do you make of this?
1: I found it astounding because you know as we've done this, we've we, how our our method for anybody who wants to copy it was both of us read the play, I think like two times each, and mm-hmm. then we said, okay, let's get together and let's do the let's do the first episode and then we reread Act One. And right. we talk about act one. And then, okay, let's do the next episode. We reread act two. And occasionally, maybe you reread it more than once. But really, you're just reading, you know, like 20 to 50 pages at a time. You're never reading the whole play over and over. And so, when we talked about Regan and Goneril and the question of Edmund, who he's already said that he's sort of playing with them in the previous act, we mm-hmm. came to the conclusion that they wanted him because he became Gloucester. Mm -hmm. Uh, that that was going to solidify power and give them more strength in their positions against each other to take each other's land. Right. So that was, that was, we were trying to find the real politic explanation for it because these sisters are so conniving. Surely it's not just them um, being emotional girls, but this line makes it look like that's what's going on. And perhaps the only the only connection to our previous assessment of this that I can that I can clearly draw is the sibling rivalry point.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: That Lear very, very early in the play, he says the reason he's dividing up and giving the patrimonies when he is is because he wants to to prevent future strife. Mm-hmm. He he knows these women and he knows they're going to tear each other's hair out trying to figure out who gets what part of the <laughs> And then it's going to start a war. And even um, as as we recall, we talked about Jaffa's account of things. It seems as if Cordelia's portion of the land is, and also her proposed marriage to Burgundy, all of this is supposed to be a way to mediate between these sisters.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: They're not fighting each other. And so that point, the sibling rivalry point, she may have lost sight of what they were doing all this for, right? Like they literally... Kill their father. They try and send him off into a storm to die so that they consolidate power and have England. And they're united in doing that. But as soon as that's done, they start fighting like cats again. Mm -hmm. And it seems as if somehow she's lost sight of what the ultimate power was for in the question of, you know, ruling over England because she only cares about getting it over on her sister. That's Mm -hmm. the one point. The other point is. It's conceivable that this is something a lot like what we see with Lady Macbeth in Macbeth. I know that I always bring up that play, but I always will. Mm-hmm. Lady Macbeth, she demonstrates in the play the difficulty for humans, men and women, to behave other than their nature. Mm-hmm. And so Lady Macbeth unsex me here is one of her famous lines, one of these right. famous feminists love this they they love this line right oh yes you gotta overcome your womanly nature and become powerful <laughs> but uh then and then she tells Macbeth I'm going to do the murder you don't have to worry about it you take care of you take care of the social part of it I'll kill them leave the rest to me is what she says <laughs> but when she goes to kill him she goes into the king and she comes out and she's just like, oh, he's just such a wuss and he's mm-hmm. just knocking in there doing it. I would have done it myself if he didn't look like my dad.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And so already we see her resolve weakening. She doesn't do the murder and she becomes sentimental about her father. Um, right. And then which one of them really goes truly insane? Is it Macbeth or Lady Macbeth? Mm-hmm. It's Lady Macbeth, right? She's the one who who can't sleep and can't control herself and Reveals the whole plot in her dreams, but she didn't even murder anyone. Macbeth murdered like a dozen people. And he, I mean, it's not to say that like, oh yes, men are stronger and it's good. Macbeth is a, is a monster and he loses track of, of what a human soul is. So he betrays his human nature as well. But when she tries to, she reverts back to a womanish reaction to things that are upsetting and difficult. uh mm-hmm. That's one thing. That's, that's the Lady Macbeth account. Uh, here we see Regan and Goneril start to fight like women when they've had this very mannish calculating political working behind their husband's back, at least in the case of Goneril um, working behind Albany's back. It seems that Regan is hand in glove with uh, Cornwall, mm-hmm. uh, but they're, they're, they're doing these, these very big political moves in, in secret and they have this grand plot. But then when it comes down to it, they end up surrendering to their female nature in a certain way and their jealousy and their affection and love and lust and whatever else you want to call it. And this desire to have this man of power, Edmund mm-hmm. uh, in the case of, in the case of Goneril who's married to, as she sees it, the toast Albany who's, you know, this uh, she, she calls, she doesn't call him a man. She, she uh, marry your manhood mew. If you remember from, Last time, his when he refuses to to choke her when he probably should,
2: right? Uh,
1: she she becomes sentimental in a in a uh, feminine way when she's been so unfeminine throughout the whole play, mm-hmm. uh, so young and so ungentle. Lear says of his daughter, well, they've been ungentle this whole play, but suddenly this gentleness and this almost teenage like, I'm just gonna die if he doesn't like me back, is what it almost feels like, and to me. Shakespeare likes to point out that men and women have natures and it is very, very difficult to suppress that nature and make it go away.
0: Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, Oh man. Yeah. There's so many good things what you said, so I guess to start with, yeah. So Goneril is not satisfied with Albany and it, and it's almost like at the beginning of act five, Albany's spoken of as a man who won't like hold his purpose or a man who might change his course. And it seems like Albany's kind of bothered or a little bit half-hearted about fighting, because on one hand, he thinks the displacement and treatment of Lear is unjust. And he sort of says, I can only be valiant um, when uh, I know that the course is just. That that's a paraphrase. That's not exactly what he says. But but he seems to think that justice is a requirement or a prerequisite. Prerequisite of fighting well, and so so he has to kind of rethink of the conflict of well, the French are invading England, so that's not good. That that's unjust. So on that basis, I will you know stand against them. But he he seems to think that the principle has to dictate action, or that he has to, he has to look to something independent of his will, like justice, and try to make his actions in accordance with it. Whereas, uh, you know, Edmund is certainly not, not at all like that. And so there's a way in which Goneril and Regan probably, or that they see this, this willingness to step away from principle as a kind of manly willingness to be kind of like, as you were sort of saying, politique. Um, and that, yeah, it takes a kind of manliness to step, uh, to step beyond justice, which maybe by Edmund's account is a kind of pure convention. That's really all it is. Just something that um, weak people follow out of fear, but that real men set aside or sneak past when they're able to. Um, so, so that's, that's to say one thing. And so then it's kind of striking that Goneril who seemed, as you were saying, like is a kind of real politique, like she's almost cl- re- like, cold, coldly reasoning sort of about what needs to be done. And the fact that, you know, uh, Gloucester was, uh, effectively tortured and, you know, Goneril and Regan, uh, you know, don't really seem to care about that or are even like eager participants, um, in this, uh, kind of thing that it's very striking. As you point out, Bolingbroke, that there's a kind of sudden submission to nature in a way that, Goneril really seems to love Edmund. And and I think you're right to say that there is also an element of rivalry between siblings with respect to this. Of like, well, I I couldn't bear to see my sister with him, but it's also that she wants to be with him and would even sacrifice the rule over England. It's okay if the public sphere goes to shit or uh, you know, part of my French I guess, but like goes goes south if if I'm not able to rule, even though that's part of what attracted her to Edmund initially, so long as she can be with him, uh, like that's good enough. Almost in the same way that, well, I don't know if it's exactly like this, but if the, if Plato's Republic asks like, how good is justice? Is it good enough that you would forfeit every other good and even undergo many evils in order to be just? Is that how good it is? That It's almost like Goneral's sort of like, I'll forego quite a few goods because love with Edmund or of Edmund and depriving my sister of Edmund is so good. I would get rid of like a lot of things, including ruling over her father's fort like former domain. So it's, it's yeah, it was a remarkable line. I mean, we've just like talked this long, both of us like about this, this line. It it was, it was striking very, like a very important
1: line. I think, I, I think, I think we'll pick this back up when we get here, but, as you were speaking, uh, the rendering the political for this personal gain, Mm -hmm. what she's saying, that is a pretty good summation of what Lear proposes to do with Cordelia in prison. Mm -hmm. And so I, I wonder if there's, there's maybe a parallel there that we can point to that everyone in the play is political until they're not. Um, yeah, I, I'm not I'm not sure. I'm not sure totally what to make of that. But when we talk about that a little bit more soon, then then perhaps we can pull something from that.
0: Right. Right. So then at the end of Act 5, Scene 1, I mean, Ed, Edmund, you sort of see the difference between the passionate thinking of Goneril versus the very cold reasoning of Edmund. Mm-hmm. He sort of thinks like, yeah, you know, both the sisters like me. That seems good for me. Um, sort of like, which one should I take? okay, based on who I take, who do I have to kill? Who do I have to dispose of? What's What needs to be done in order, like, and what are the advantages that, you know, are accrued by being with one or the other? Um, and what difficulties are accrued? That is, it's very cold in contrast to Goneril and Regan sort of jockeying for Edmund. Um, so, if, so then, And we'll return to some of the themes from Act 5, Scene 1. But if we start to turn towards Act 5, Scene 2, um, I think we both had some thoughts on, uh, I think you called it Edgar's hopefulness. That he's uh, sort of like teaching Gloucester or a kind of hopefulness that he has in mind. What do you you think about Edgar's hopefulness?
1: It feels like it's almost a theme with Edgar's interactions with gloucester right it's he he sees him in his despair and he says i'm going to do this tremendous act of magic of of statesman-like magic to convince him that his life is a miracle mm-hmm. in a way the reason he needs to convince him of that is because edgar already believes that mm-hmm. That his father's life is a miracle, his life is a miracle, that life is a miracle, and that if you don't have hope, then you have nothing. And so everything that he does with Gloucester is to try and fix this. And so the beginning of the scene, Edgar runs off to battle, and he comes. It's it's a very short scene. It's like what twenty lines.
2: Yeah.
1: it's not even. It's like thirteen lines. And he, so he runs off to battle, and he comes back, and he says, he says, stand up and run away. the The French have been defeated. Mm-hmm. glosser says no further sir a man may rot even here and edgar goes what in ill thoughts again mm-hmm. men must endure their going hence even as they're coming hither ripeness is all come on mm-hmm. Gloster says, and that's true too and he goes with him uh he he's he's almost like it's it's almost like um he, he's like a, a captain in war who's trying to urge his troops onward. Mm-hmm. And it's his, but it's his father. Mm-hmm. Now his account at the end of the play makes it seem as if his father knows that this is him at this point, but it's not clear to me that he does. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, uh, his father, who doesn't even know who he is, just this guy who found him at the base of the cliffs of Dover when he took a, took her header off of it and didn't die. Uh, And his assessment for Gloucester is you said that you're going to rot here. Mm -hmm. And that's true. All of us are rotting. But if that's what you think of life is nothing but a movement from being hard on the tree to being totally rotted, then you don't understand what this is about. Mm -hmm. The fruit that you pick today might be rotten tomorrow. The point Mm -hmm. is not the rotting. The point is the ripeness. And as long as you have life in you and you're able to cling onto the tree, you have ripeness. ripeness can ripeness lasts as long as you last, mm-hmm. and you can rot, yes, you can stay here and rot here just as well as anywhere else, but you don't have to rot. that's not what life is. life is not just a movement from birth to death. it's not this uh it's not just this slow march, and everybody dies eventually. That's true. But that's not, there's no, there's no good in thinking about that, especially for someone who's had their eyes plucked out and was trying to kill himself. Like you have to change your perspective or you're going to get it wrong. Mm -hmm. And one other thing that, that occurred to me in, in my assessment of this, we talked about how Lear might have been, at least I, I put this forward pretty strongly that Lear might've been mistaken in the strength of his position on human nature because he was basing it on Edgar's fake character mm-hmm. uh, that he was saying, this is what man is by nature. He's this, this crazy guy. Well, okay. That wasn't man. Exactly. But it's not even a real person. And so what do we make of that? But just now I was earlier, I was watching um, Anthony Hopkins did a version of Lear. I'm actually not all that in love with his, uh, his acting of Lear. I feel like he, he doesn't deliver all the lines properly, but uh Edgar does a pretty good job. Uh, I don't remember his name. Same guy who plays uh, Moriarty in the BBC, shakes uh, BBC uh, Sherlock. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a moment when, so of course, Lear is observing Edgar, and he goes, "Look at this." I, you know, he's like a student of human nature, and he's learning things. There's this moment in this in this production of it where it shows everyone's asleep in the hovel except for poor Tom. And his eyes are saucers as he stares at Lear. Just mm-hmm. watching him and just like in shock at what he's just seen. Mm-hmm. Um, and so Lear got an education in human nature or so he thought, but Edgar got one in turn and his was legitimate. He was able to see what happened to his king who he served and was in the court of and that he spent his life honoring and following. He saw him lose his mind and hold a trial to an empty chair mm-hmm. and he he is able then what facts he draws from that he has the same experience as lear except for his is a little bit more legitimate than lear's what he draws from that is that you will you will rot if you don't stay ripe and that's what happened to lear mm-hmm. In a certain way, this is this is a way to read this that lear rotted because he there wasn't life left in him. He let the life, you know, maybe Cordelia is his life, whatever. He let it go mm-hmm. and rotted instead of having ripeness and all. And so for Edgar, if he can save his father from Lear's fate, he will.
0: Right. Okay. Yeah, I, I really like what you did with the rotting, ripe uh, dichotomy. Like almost like two competing perspectives on how to understand human life. They're intimately related to one another. Um, and I guess I was, I've been really struck by the way that Edgar, as he speaks to his father, um, this is around, I guess the final lines of Edgar in act five, scene two, he says, what in ill thoughts again, I think you had mentioned this also, but he says, he continues, men must endure. They're going hence, even as they're coming hither. Ripeness is all come on. And Gloucester says, that's true too. But it it does seem – I don't know. There's like a lot to say about this. And and I'm having new thoughts in light of what you were saying um, that arguably one could suggest that Edgar had sort of – almost had contrasting visions of a kind of education or direction maybe that he wanted to send Lear and Gloucester on. Or at any rate, one can for sure say that Lear and Gloucester draw very different conclusions – in light of things that Edgar says to them, such that Lear starts to inquire into cause um, as a result of talking with Edgar and starts to wonder or think that like, well, I don't know, what, what am I supposed to do about the fact that there doesn't seem to be a correspondence between just action and the results that emerge in this life for human beings? What am I supposed to do about that? Whereas on the other hand, Gloucester almost thinks that a miracle has taken place for him Uh, Or maybe he does believe that a miracle has taken place for him, a miracle that's been staged by Edgar. And and I'm I'm interested in this uh, from what I was reading earlier when Edgar says like you have to endure that I wonder to some extent if like Edgar's just thinking about like what kind of education is required for a human being to endure the hardships that cannot be otherwise, like when things are just unbelievably bad. Um, as they turn out to be for Lear and Gloucester, like sufferings that are almost unimaginable to most of us, or or that I at least hope most listeners have not undergone, although maybe you have, but like, however that may be, what would allow you to persist? Why would you endure? We see a lot of characters commit suicide by the end of the play. And it seems like that flows out of a thought that like, life is not worth enduring anymore in light of the difficulties. There's a kind of despair, like a true... I guess, being without hope that has to, you know, that accompanies despair. That's what despair is, I suppose. And in a way, it's almost like Edgar was wondering, I don't know, this is to go too far. And I don't even mean to say that he was experimenting, but just if he was wondering what, based on the the calibrations of these two different men's souls. Now, I'm not even, I don't have a clear sense of exactly what Edgar thinks about everything ultimately, but is he thinking about like, what do I need to tell Lear to help him endure what do I have to tell Gloucester to help him endure? And that's not even a statement yet on like which of these two things might be more helpful. But ultimately, though, maybe the circumstances are so much. I mean, neither of them ends up enduring by the end of the play. Neither of these educations bear themselves out. Maybe that's because of their age. Maybe it's because of the extremeness of the circumstances. There's a lot to wonder about with respect to that. But However that may be, it does. I do certainly agree with you that Edgar wanted to foster a kind of hopefulness in Gloucester. And he certainly thought that that was tied to a pious perspective. And uh, yeah, yeah. So he, he wants to drag Gloucester out of despair um, at the very least. I think I think that's for sure.
1: Yeah, and I think uh, the educations, in a way, he might have been more comfortable attempting something more drastic with both Lear and Gloucester than he would have with, um, Edmund, if, if Edmund were in a different situation and Edgar had the opportunity to try and help him, mm-hmm. he might have tried to educate him more subtly or more carefully, yeah, yeah. but because these men are older, Gloucester's life has already been ruined. You know, his eyes have been torn out and mm-hmm. he's been declared a, uh, a traitor to the crown and everything. And so all he's, he's like, if I can if by these extreme methods, I can give him strength enough to endure, then that is enormous. And I'm going to try and do that. And then with Lear, his soul has has cracked in two with his heart and his mind. And he's trying to help Lear, put the pieces back together. And he thinks, if I can help Lear, come to some understanding of nature and seek to learn about the nature of things, maybe this can help him build himself up from the start but he might not have tried that if they weren't 80 years old.
0: <laughs> right, right. A, a, an extremely important particular that can't be overlooked with respect to how he tries to help them.
1: And even, um, doesn't, uh, doesn't Strauss suggest that Socrates might have run away if he wasn't in his 70s? Oh
0: yeah,
2: in a big it's, way.
1: It's, it's kind of the same thing, right? That Socrates doesn't, take up uh, Crito's offer to, to take off, you know, Crito's like, I got money, I got people, I can get you out of here. And Socrates like, ah, I think I'm good. And (laughs) he makes this argument about justice and piety for the city and and obeying the laws and these things. But Strauss says, however, one might wonder what he would have done if he were 30 instead of 70. Right. uh, uh, The same applies here.
0: Right. He might've, doesn't he go as far as to say that it's like, maybe he would have just, uh, he would have been the Athenian stranger, like in the laws, uh, right. he might've had that kind of conversation.
1: Yeah, no, that, that's right.
0: Right. Yeah. Good. So yeah, no. So the circumstances matter a lot, um, always obviously, but, but here for sure. Um, so moving into act five, scene three, um, I think we both wanted to talk a little bit about, Lear and his like response to being imprisoned um, by Edmund. that Edmund, well, as we've discovered, like Edmund not only wants to put Lear and Cordelia in prison, but he wants to make sure that they die like that. And, and I, I don't know that maybe you could correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think that Lear spells out all the reasons or sorry, Edmund doesn't spell all the reasons he wants to kill them or assassinate them quietly. He, you know, he finds a man, uh, to do it, who's not going to deliberate too much, who will be richly rewarded for um, his ugly deed. But nevertheless, you, you could imagine reasons, I suppose, that they are they might contest the throne as possible, that in their travails, they've learned various things that could expose Edmund. So there are political reasons why he might want to imprison and or ultimately kill them. And, and that's obviously what happens to Cordelia. But Bolingbroke, what do you think? What's could you tell us a little bit about Lear's response to being put into prison? Because I think it's a, a kind of remarkable reaction, although one that maybe flows out of things that we've seen him say earlier in the play or earlier circumstances. Yeah. What, what do you make of the fact? What do you make of Lear's response uh, to prison? How does he respond, and, and what do you make of that response?
1: Yeah. So, so first, let me just pick up on your thing you said about Edmund, mm-hmm. I've Scene One, starting at. Um like line seventy-three. Mm-hmm. Uh he this is when he's contemplating which sister am I gonna marry? Oh, I don't know, it doesn't really matter. Could be both, could be neither. And mm-hmm. says, As for the mercy which he, that is Albany, intends to leer into Cordelia, the battle done, and they within our power shall never see his pardon. For my state stands on me to defend, not to debate. Mm-hmm. Um that is his account, I think, of why he does it. That first he's trying to not allow Albany to pardon them because if Albany pardons them and then he kills them in some other fashion later, uh, mm-hmm. it can it can come back to him. But if he can find a way to take care of it quietly, then it might not come back to him. And if he can get rid of them, then really like that's the last step, and now he's free, as far as he knows. He doesn't. He thinks he already took care of Edgar, mm-hmm. uh, in his mind. If he can get rid of him, then 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 he's free. And he, I think makes almost a statesman like point there, uh, his state that is his, his, uh, where he stands in relative to the crown where he is as the apparent, uh, Duke of Gloucester because of his father's banishment, uh, depends on him to defend and not debate. He doesn't need to have a discussion about what's going on. If he's going to maintain the power and continue to do what he's doing, and have his rule, whether it be righteous or wicked, whatever, he has mm-hmm. to move forward with what he thinks is best and be decisive. Mm-hmm. So that's that's my account of that. Um, if you want to comment on that before I go to Lear, that's
0: fine. Uh, oh, no, no, that makes sense. Yeah.
1: Okay. Now, um, Lear When so, Edmund takes him, sends him off to prison. Cordelia turns to Lear and she says, I'm so sorry. This, I did my best. France failed. Uh, by the way, another recurring theme in Shakespeare it's not a perhaps very uh, politically correct theme, but he has women often attempt to do things in battle and always fail spectacularly. Mm. Uh, Cordelia has just done so, right? France isn't there, she's the one leading the French forces, and it fails. Antony and Cleopatra is a great example. Cleopatra mm-hmm. follows Antony into battle, and when she turns her ships about, which is the wrong move, his ships start to follow, and he goes ahead and lets them. Mm-hmm. And that's why he could have he could have been the Emperor of Rome. Because apparently they were they had the upper hand. But mm-hmm. um, that's it because of Cleopatra. And then of course there's Catherine in um, the Henry VI place who musters who musters an army to defend the throne, which Henry VI has been kicked off the throne. He's running around in the countryside, uh, Mm -hmm. but he's still technically the king and she is trying to retrieve the throne for her son. And she fails once again, spectacularly in battle as a woman. So uh, just a little side note on that. (laughs) But that I think goes along with the human nature. Women have a certain kind of role to play in politics and, Um, there's a reason why there aren't a lot of successful women generals and Shakespeare I think sort of points the same reason that Goneril slips into a a girlish fantasy about Edmund rather than focusing on keeping her power
0: right and then doesn't Edmund have a long speech about how women have been oppressed and like this is like why no no sorry I'm thinking I'm thinking something else never mind no I don't think he does this I'm just kidding
1: no, it's okay. It's okay. Um. So she she loses. She apologizes, and she's like, "But we're not the first person to try this and and to fail. Now, are we going to engage in a political debate with our sisters about what's going to happen next?" Mm-hmm. Essentially, she asks, and there goes no, 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 no. Come, let's away to prison. We two alone will sing like birds the cage. When thou dost ask me blessing, I'll kneel down and ask of thee forgiveness. So we'll live, and pray and sing and tell old tales, and laugh at gilded butterflies, and hear poor rogues, talk of court news, and we'll talk with them too. Who loses and who wins, who's in, who's out, and take upon us the mystery of things, as if we were gods spies, and will wear out in a walled prison pacts and sects of great ones that ebb and flow by the moon. And Edmund, take them away. Lear, upon such sacrifices, my Cordelia, the gods themselves throw incense. Have I copy? He that parts us shall bring brand a brand from heaven to fire us, hence like foxes. Wipe thine eyes. The good year shall devour them flesh and fell, ere they shall make us weep. We'll see him starved first. Come. So um, Lear, it's, it's very pretty. It's a famous speech. Uh, proposes to Cordelia, no, let's not take the political path. I'm done with that. Mm-hmm. Exhausted. And I'm sure you are too. And you and I have seen what happens when you and I engage in politics together. We had this <laughs> rhetorical match at the beginning of the play and everything went to rot. I'm never going to lose you again. So there's, there's this very beautiful sentimental part of it. I don't want to lose you again. I want to stay with you. And if that means we're in prison, it means we're in prison. Mm-hmm. Now, this is the point that I was kind of trying to tie to Goneril. Goneril said, I love Edmund. And I would rather... Now, again, she doesn't say, I want to be with Edmund. She says, I would... I don't want my sister to keep us apart. But um, I would rather be with Edmund than have my power in England. And -hmm. this is what Lear says. I would rather be with Cordelia in prison than without her out of prison. Mm -hmm. And have I caught you? Do, Do you see my vision? Will you come with me? Come with me to prison, please. Because all I want is to be with you. Now, he doesn't leave off politics forever. It's strange because he wants to... Uh, engage in theoretical politics with Cordelia. He wants to have like. He wants he wants to take like gossip with her, mm-hmm. and the quote I think from uh, is it from uh Eva Brand at uh, St John's College that says something about gossip being the, beginning of philosophy or like a, like a down a step away from philosophy or something like this. I I don't totally. I don't know that I totally buy it, but it's something like this, that uh, they want to gossip about the court and then use this as a way to talk about politics and from their exalted situation in prison, which they will make into a heavenly situation for themselves uh, in this prison, in this heaven on earth that they've created, they will look down as gods or as God's spies and take upon themselves the mystery of truth and of life and of politics and judge the men in the court from afar. And the sects and the, the combinations of people, the the factions, they'll go in, they'll go out. Kings will come, kings will go. Courtiers will come, courtiers will go. But Lear and Cordelia will be the one thing that stays constant in prison, judging them rightly uh, by their sound theoretical judgment in this, in this prison situation. So it's curious because he wants Cordelia, he wants to be with her and he wants to love her. But somehow he also feels... I don't know if it's for himself or for her, or for both of them, that he needs to offer this like intellectual element to it, that like, we are going to engage in political philosophy while we're in prison, even though we can't engage. You're, you're suggesting we need to talk to your sisters. I'm suggesting we should never talk to them again, but get instead should talk about them in prison and come to understand the principles behind all of this.
0: Nice. So,
1: I don't totally know what to make of all of it, but that's, that's how I read it this time.
0: Yeah, no, that's, that's good. I mean, it, Uh, It seems to follow up on well, to some extent Edgar's education of Lear, if Lear was turning to causes and now he's turning to something like political philosophy, not wanting to necessarily impose himself on the world, but still wanting to understand the world, not only a theory, but like also now of action. Like we we want to talk about those kinds of things that the prison presents a kind of repose or kind of like cessation of all this, like you know, very difficult things that have like happened to Lear and Cordelia, and now uh, they can almost like make up the time that they've lost or something like that by talking about these things. So, so yeah, so so it seems like it's a kind of theoretical turn by Lear, uh, or or a continuation of it in a certain sense, um, and then with um, Cordelia, it seems like she responds better, maybe than Lear did. Although, I mean, there's a lot to say about it, but Lear maybe earlier drew a pretty extreme conclusion, um, out of a lack of correspondence between somebody's justice and what happens to them in this life where he, you know, almost like the, the sort of crazy scene where he's trying Regan and Goneril, um, and they're not actually there. And it's almost like these two stools get pulled up and it seems like it's a kind of height of insanity, but it seems like he's sort of saying like, even in his own imagination, they're not going to get punished by the law. They're going to get away with it. This is kind of what happens. Um, if you're good enough at getting away with things like you will, but Cordelia uh, sort of says like, yeah, you know, we tried to do the right thing, but you know, sometimes um, it doesn't work out. Like in her own words, uh, she says, is I think you quoted this as well, but we are not the first who, with best meaning, have incurred the worse. So she's sort of like, yeah, okay. So we, I think we're just or tried our best, but uh, bad things are happening to us. But she doesn't despair in the way that the older men did. She's still open to the possibility they could impose themselves on the world and it could turn out well. So she sort of at a loss in a way, not not quite at a loss, but just sort of thinking well, there's still something to do about this Um, or something that could be done. We're sort of now turning to her father and thinking like, what should we do? And to say one last point, uh, yeah, the the gossip point, I think there's like a YouTube series called Higher Gossip made by uh, a St. John's alum or somebody kind of related to them that has interviews with Eva Brain and others to sort of reemphasize the gossip point. And it does seem like there's some kind of inroads that gossip, presents towards higher or better or more important things insofar as maybe gossip on one hand is exciting and it draws two people together or more to sort of like talk about you know what they are interested in and like you could be very interested in gossip for very non-philosophical motivations obviously you know first and foremost maybe you're interested in it for non-philosophical reasons but it seems like when you're gossiping you can't help but say like i can't believe this guy did that i can't believe this girl did that like that's so bad, but it's like it can't help but get involved. Like, well, why are they bad? Like, what's the basis of their badness? Now, of course, gossip could just work on presuppositions of like, well, we're not going to really inquire into why it's good or bad. But I think it opens the door to bringing two minds together, looking at the same thing to to ask that question. I, I think it can be a gateway if it's done right. Um, but I think it often isn't. So surely,
1: Leo's description seems like that is the intent. And and you can see how it would be. It's right. It's like, so why is the faction of uh, people in favor of parliament over the king winning out right now? And and Lear, you said you think they're going to fail. Why do you think that is? Right. So now it's gossip about the faction, but also we're going to be talking about regime change and the various different systems of justice and democracy, right? Like all, all of a sudden it opens up this, this whole new world of things.
0: Mm-hmm. Right, yeah, yes yeah. so maybe maybe this is higher gossip that he, he is interested in um so I think we wanted to and I think we both have things to say about um Edmund um do you want to start with Edmund or do you want me to start with Edmund um
1: I think you should start
0: well okay so uh, this is maybe something. Maybe this is too much of like a Platonic trope that I'm kind of interested in. Something like characters in Plato's dialogues, sometimes like the the manliest characters, or maybe the the ones who are most likely to make an argument about like why justice ultimately isn't important, or like just if we are using the you know Republic a little bit, like um, Thrasymachus saying justice is the advantage of the stronger which is to say, you know, there's like a certain class of people who are in power. They impose their vision of the world on those who they rule over. It's always to their advantage. And so when you are being just, you're not benefiting yourself. You're benefiting other people, but not in the way that the just think that they are, but they're benefiting others who are getting an advantage from them beyond like, you know, merely being like beyond your sort of like self-sacrificial attempt to help that like really they are cynically They're cynical beneficiaries, not uh, anything other than that. So, like, but but it turns out, uh, well, there's a lot to say about this, and you can read other things about this. But that Thrasymachus cares a little bit more about justice than he realizes. It, It may be to say one thing: he really wants his pupils to know the truth. He wants to enlighten you about the fact that most people are cynical. It's really important to him that others know that, and by exposing the cynical selfishness of others. Thrasymachus, in a certain sense, is beneficial towards others, even at the same point, you know, time that he's trying to say, uh, you know, you should be selfish. I can help you be better at being selfish or something like that. He cares. And there's more to say about this than that. But um, and maybe he doesn't realize how much he cares about assisting others. But I wonder if Edgar or sorry, Edmund, precisely because, you know, early on, he sort of tries to say, I can in a manly way assert myself against convention. I wonder if he too exposes himself as being slightly more attached to convention or to justice um, than he originally believes of himself. Like insofar as, uh, so Edgar, his brother gives a note to Albany uh, that I think he got in from Oswald that confirms that Edmund is a treacherous person and was planning uh, some pretty dark things and Edgar shows up in armor to fight, or he's, he's armed and he's ready to fight against Edmund, but he doesn't say what his name is. And it, it seems like Shakespeare's presenting some kind of noble convention that if a person is not named, i.e. potentially not noble uh, or born a noble, a noble person or a nobly born person doesn't have to fight against them. And Goneril even points out that this is a kind of unwisdom to fight against somebody like that after Edmund has been mortally wounded. And so I was wondering if there was a kind of, that, that maybe Ed, Edmund has an attachment to a kind of manly self-assertion in a kind of moral way of wanting to prove that he's courageous, to prove to others, to receive their recognition that he is a real man. Um, and that, maybe some of his goals could be accomplished in a sneakier way or like he doesn't have to necessarily fight. Maybe Albany would have fought him anyway. Maybe he can't really avoid a fight, but I did wonder based on what Goneril said, if she's sort of thinking like this was unnecessary that she suddenly turns to a slightly more cold realpolitik view for a moment thinking, why did you do that? Like don't take unnecessary risks. Just get what's advantageous to yourself And that this risk is a kind of moral fault of manliness, when in this particular case, sneakiness or avoidance was what prudence would have called for if you're trying to secure your own advantage. Whereas maybe Edmund got overly attached to himself as a manly guy, yeah, who will now fight in order to get what he thinks that he deserves. So he's not able to fully overcome morality within himself he can't go beyond a moral frame of reference in a way that's kind of to his fault since he thought that maybe he had overcome it and now to his detriment uh he has not overcome it and now he's dying uh and bleeding on the ground for the rest of the act until he dies yeah so yeah what do you, what do you think what would you add or subtract from this account of Edmund I,
1: th- I think that your assessment is correct I'm I I have a couple of other comparisons that that come to mind.
2: Mm-hmm. First,
1: in Machiavelli's discourses, he says that it is never advisable when you have a strong army that you like if your army is in a strong position to actually, you know, have out the battle and to put up a good fight to ever do single combat rather than a battle.
2: Mm.
1: The reason being, you're staking the fate of an entire nation, right? Whatever the, whatever's at stake in the battle, you're staking everything on the virtue of one person rather than on the power of the army. And mm-hmm. he specifically calls out many, many instances in Livy of people doing this. And, you know, he, he calls out instances that are, that are noble and commendable. And he says, how stupid was that? Mm-hmm. You know, what, what were they thinking? Uh, you know, a, 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 a famous one is the her, the Heratii, the, the three brothers who, who do this single combat together, but they, who, who succeed. But um, there's that one. And then there's this great example in, again, Antony and Cleopatra, where Antony repeatedly challenges Octavius Caesar to single combat. And there's one time that we see it in the play. They say, hey, Antony has, again, challenged you to single combat. The facts that we know are that Antony is very, very good in battle that he's an amazing general and he's a great fighter and that he's like 30 years the senior of octavius and so he's been in a lot of battles and so octavius knows there he he gains no advantage by fighting antony he has a better army he is the con, or that he's the um part of the triumvirate of rome and antony's sort of been excommunicated from that and lepidus is in prison so now he's starting to be the emperor right um and so he he just laughs. He says, "Why would I do that? I'm not going to fight him in single combat." And Antony's just like, "You have no honor." He's just like, "I, I don't. I, I really don't care about that. That's mm-hmm. not. I'm not. I'm not interested in your ideas of honor. I'm interested in winning and being and maintaining Rome and not letting Rome become Egypt, which is what you're interested in." Mm-hmm. Uh, so you can see the wisdom in this, but I tend to agree with you on the point that. Edmund in a way becomes more more relatable and more commendable that he doesn't maintain his uh, large M Machiavellianism that like really understanding how one ought to behave in politics. He doesn't maintain that facade in the face of proving his nobility. Because here's the facts. She, uh, Goneril says you didn't have to fight him because you didn't know his name because maybe he wasn't noble. Well, guess who else isn't noble? Edmund. He's mm-hmm. noble by convention. He was noble because his father, who he betrayed and let have his eyes popped out, made him noble. He says, "I will, I will make you uh, capable." I think is the phrase he uses uh, to to inherit and to become his son. So it's just merely by it, he he's a paper noble, and he feels this this difficulty with that. And I believe early on. In, in our discussions, we said that Edmund has a sort of meritocracy that he values
2: mm-hmm.
1: in his mind. He's better than Edgar. He's smarter than most of the people he interacts with, but because he's base bastardy base baseness bastard, as he, as he calls himself, mm-hmm.
2: he,
1: he doesn't get to be part of it. And so this is his chance to, uh, with an appeal to heaven trial by combat, a very classical, medieval way to demonstrate your virtue and God's approbation of your claims he can prove his merit that he is noble by nature if not by convention and one that is commendable two this is when natural justice in the play starts to smack everybody with a giant hammer and this is one of the case in point cases in point is that Edmund gets struck down because of all the wickedness he's done. Yes, but also perhaps to tell him, no, you are not noble by nature and no, your merit does not make you worthy to engage with somebody on the level of Edgar, despite mm-hmm. what we think. Uh, and, and we, in a moment we can, we can go and we can talk about the other, the other smacks of the, of the hammer of justice that we see in this scene. But, um, yeah, that that's that's my my view, and I think I think you're right on about this. They present Edmund one way, but then he he seems to slip a little because he feels either a manly self-assertion or maybe a uh, self-consciousness about his status.
0: Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. So I, I think you had said you know that it makes him almost more relatable. Yeah. That. <clears throat> But it's, it's very hard to be a Machiavellian operator uh, in a strict sense. I think Machiavelli knows this also that it's hard to just view the world in terms of necessity and just do what's required. Um, that's a very difficult thing. But at the same, yeah. <laughs> it's also, I guess it was somewhat striking to me uh, reading it this afternoon, thinking that Edmund despite the fact that he's starting to be a little bit more conciliatory, like, yeah, I'll, I'll kind of let you guys know what's going on now that I'm you know sitting here dying and there's, you know, no consequences for me revealing some of what I have done. Um, but he's sent assassins for Lear and Cordelia. He's done that. And he has multiple moments where I think he certainly could have said something after he's wounded. And in fact, he doesn't even bring it up himself. Um, it's brought up, is it by Albany? Uh, at any rate, we can certainly say that he is not the first to bring up that he has sent somebody there. And I think Edgar has to be like, well, don't we have to you know, send like a sign? Like, you know, send them something that whoever, whatever messenger that we send will have some kind of sign that this truly is from you. And Edmund had instructed his captain to be like a sword. You know, don't deliberate about this. Just do what swords do and just kill. Um, that's what you need to do. And so then, so that's why he sends his sword as the symbol of his decision to turn things around. But yeah, it seems there's like a, a slight pull. He feels the small tug maybe of morality, but it's not such a powerful tug that he thinks. Oh, I should rescind the assassination request. No, he is bleeding, so like undoubtedly that would obscure one's judgment um as they think about things. But if or to the extent that he's made a slight moral turn, I think we could, you know, only say that it's very slight. Um, since he doesn't try to undo something that could still change. It's more of like a a contemplation or revealing of things that he had done, but he doesn't evince a willingness to actually now try to undo any of the bad things that he's like set in motion or this bad thing that's set in motion. That's like still, he could actually make it otherwise. He could impose himself on the world in a way that could fix things, but just doesn't mention it. And there's reasons maybe he wouldn't mention it again. He's bleeding, but one might've wished that he said something about this a little bit earlier instead of it being brought up by someone else.
1: Yeah. You know, I I think, I think he does bring it up himself technically but what makes him bring it up is a bloody knife comes in uh regan has killed herself or goneril has killed herself whichever one was poisoned whichever one wasn't i don't remember doesn't really matter
0: goneril kills herself regan poisoned
1: okay so their bodies are brought out and after they're brought out he says uh 291 i pant for life some good i mean to do despite of mine own nature quickly send be brief in it to the castle for my writ is on the life of Lear and on cordelia Nay, send in time and albany screams run run oh run and then edgar's like hold on hold on hold on we have to do something to like to show that that you did this said yeah okay take my sword that's right um so it does seem that he means to do it but that he's not reminded of it until he sees a bloody knife and he's laying there and he sees the these dead women you just see the knife but albany at
0: 281 282 says great thing of us forgot speak edmund where's the king and where's cordelia
1: oh right 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 so he brings it up um yeah yeah and he okay you're right he and he does delay even saying it he doesn't answer it right away. Eh, to be fair, there are dead bodies that come out.
0: Right. Oh yeah. No, <laughs> I mean, this is like an extreme situation that you can't really expect anybody to think very clearly.
1: But he does, I mean, he does seem to, they say, he says, where are they? And it's almost like his memory is jogged the way that he responds to me. But,
2: mm-hmm. um,
1: and because he does even say, I, I appreciate the phrase, despite of my own nature, the person who talks about nature more than anyone, Edmund, uh, mm-hmm is saying that he wants to do good, even though his nature is not good. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's kind of a lovely sentiment and goes along with what you've been, what you were saying that he seems impelled by some kind of natural justice to, to prove himself. Mm -hmm. And this is maybe his last chance to do that. And he fails. Right. Just Just he, his, his death is, is, it is just that he is punished.
0: Right. Right. So speaking of death, although I guess you can't really talk about act five, scene three, without talking about uh, people being dead. Um, Like, so Lear also perishes um, in this scene. And I think you had suggested uh, before we were talking a comparison with Hamlet about how he thinks of his own death or thinks of himself. Um, would, would you be willing to spell that out? Like how, so King Lear, he dies. Um, in, in what ways he's similar to Hamlet? So it's
1: his, it's the way he reacts to Cordelia's death. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then he, he sort of fulfills his own despair. Uh, but if you go to 289, mm-hmm. I don't know if we're going to get into this. He said he calls her a strange name. He calls her his fool. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's the, the first thing we've heard about anyone named fool since the previous act. His fool has disappeared from the scene. We don't know what happened to him. Um, right. So Lear two two sixty nine, not seventy nine two sixty nine says, "And my poor fool is hanged," referring to Cordelia. No, mm-hmm. no, no life. Why should a dog, a horse, a rat have life, and thou no breath at all? Thou come no more, never, 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 never. Pray you undo this button. Thank you, sir. Do you see this? Look on her lips. Look her lips. Look there. Look there, and he dies. Um. But the contemplation that he's brought to in seeing her dead is he says a dog, a horse, and a rat live, but she dead. She's dead. This reminds me of um. I i i wrote a i wrote a little Substack article about this actually. The Hamlet's assessment of materialism, based on seeing dead bodies. Mm-hmm. Uh, so first he kills Polonius; it's an accident, and uh, he gives this silly little account of how Polonius can be eaten by worms, and then and he said, but he he changes. He says, so a king he dies, gets eaten by worms. The worm gets dug up by a peasant. The peasant puts the worm on a hook, catches the fish, eats the fish and then uh, does what peasants do after they eat fish. And the king says, what are you, why are you saying this to me? He says, well, I'm just explaining how a king could go through the guts of a peasant.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And it's a joke, but it's also like, oh, so a king is nothing more than a worm. A king is nothing more than a fish that a peasant can eat. It's mm-hmm. fundamentally, is all a king is. Uh, more potently, and I feel like much more seriously, is his reaction during the famous uh, gravedigger scene. When, alas, poor Yorick, I knew him, Horatio. Uh, He's picking up all these skulls that the gravedigger is throwing out of these graves. And he's just like, look at this. This could have been a a nobleman. This could have been somebody with tons of land or a merchant who was very powerful or a politician who thought that he was going to become God on earth. And here he is now. He's a skull. And, and he does this a few times and he says, tell me one thing, Horatio. Do you think that Alexander looked like this when he died? And Horatio goes, uh, yep. He goes, hmm. so it is that Caesar, who held the world in awe, could die and turn to dust. And then the dust that he turned into could be used to fill the chink in a hole in a cabin or uh, to be made into a cork to fill a bunghole. And this is all that we come to eventually. And so for for Hamlet, this becomes the fundamental truth of life before the end of the play. This is his last contemplation. He's much more religious earlier on, but his last contemplation about these things is just very dark and materialist. And this is essentially what Lear comes to. He sees his daughter dead and he says, how can she die and the rats can live? As if that comparison even makes any sense. Mm -hmm. What do the rats have to do with anything? <laughs> like it, it's it's just a silly statement. It's a sentimental statement, but he wants to make a philosophical point about his daughter's death and saying that we are no more than dogs, horses, and rats. Mm-hmm. Right? So it is just once again. It's the same. It's the same sort of view of nature that he gets from looking at poor Tom, who, by the way, never reveals himself to Lear. Lear mm-hmm. uh, never reveals himself, and it's like, hey, you know that stuff it's you, you maybe tempered a little bit. You shouldn't think that uh, adultery should be legal and, <laughs> and, and whatever uh, other weird conclusions he came to. Um, he never tells him that. And so he still has this same thought in his head. And the last thing he thinks is apparently my daughter's no better than a rat and none of us are. And then he dies. Right. And that's foolishness given everything else that happens surrounding this. Edgar is struck or Edmund is struck down by divine justice. As is Gloucester, as are both of his daughters, as is Cornwall, uh, and uh, and he wouldn't think that Cordelia was in the wrong. But you and I discussed at the beginning of the play that Cordelia made a very serious error at the beginning of the play. That you know she never actually asked the king for forgiveness for her error ever at any point in the play.
2: Mm-hmm. She
1: never received forgiveness, and he doesn't seem to think she needs it. But she should probably think she needs it because she did something wrong. If she learned her lesson. And so maybe she didn't learn her lesson well enough. And so she's punished as well. She dies too. And of course, Lear, who is the worst of them all in a lot of ways because of his ill-considered approach to these political things, also dies. And so for Lear, somehow he's lost in contemplation about rats living while Cordelia dies when justice seems to be around him striking down the wicked left and right.
0: hmm Right right so yeah and maybe one parallel that I was thinking of was um, Lear's line and, and maybe this isn't quite a nice enough parallel but just like in the Iliad when uh, late on Achilles is killing a lot of people in the river Scamandros and kind of glutting it with bodies to the point where the river eventually attacks him yeah. uh, and Achilles has to be saved by Hephaestus He sort of says to Lacan, a man he's actually captured before um, and, you know, ransomed back after making him a prisoner. Lacan kind of like asks like, "That, that worked out pretty well before, right? Maybe we could do this again. And Achilles is like, no, dude, like Patroclus is dead. A man who's much better than you are, much better. So if he died, like what's all the fuss? Like why make all this racket? Like you don't deserve to live if somebody that good could die. And Achilles, yeah, seems deeply disturbed by a lack of correspondence between Patroclus' goodness and the outcome that befell him. And so anybody who's worse should just be dead. Um, and even even like the, you know, opening lines of the Iliad sort of like point to, the, you know, the idea of countless Achaeans being lost in light of Achilles' rage um, or wrath. And I don't know, that, and, and Lacan and rats are like a little bit different, but it does seem like Achilles is saying like, You know, Patroclus is like a real man. He's a good man and he's dead. You're less than him. Maybe you're closer to a beast than you are to a human being or like that's where your tendency goes towards. So like, yeah, why are you alive as opposed to um, a good man? Just as why are these rats allowed to live? Why are these lower forms of life allowed to persist who don't deserve it if Cordelia is dead and she does deserve to live? Like she deserved it. And Lear, you know, obviously, like, uh, it, well, it is an interesting point. And may, I, I forgot if Jaffa brings this up, but that that it's just striking that Lear is virile and vital enough to kill somebody in his old age. You know, there's, like, questions like, is he too old to rule? Well, I don't know. He's old enough to to kill somebody who's killing his daughter. Um, And the other person succeeds, and we don't know exactly how that scene looked. But I do think it is striking that he was strong enough physically to do something like that. Now he's not able to endure life any longer. Like this, this was too much for him ultimately, but I don't know. Um, I, I think I've I've uh, I just hit the end of what I had to say about Lear's sort of like, yeah, final moments. But I, th- I think I think we're in agreement about this. I mean, may- maybe. Yeah, I mean, well, no, we're not going to compare Achilles and Hamlet. That would be a conversation for a different time. So let's, I don't think we should go into that kind of like realm. That's too much. But um, yeah, what do you think about either Lear here at the end of the play? Is there anything else to say about him? And or are there other things that you want to wrap up with respect to the play as a whole?
1: Yeah. No, I think, I think that that's, that's good on Lear. I I do just want to point out that I sort of put it flippantly and, and rattled off a list, but if you want to read this play as a vindication of the existence of natural or divine justice in this life, or at least like a poetic vindication of it, I think that it can be read as a full vindication of that. Um. Cordelia is a questionable case and you could say Lear is a questionable case as well. Um, you could even say Gloucester is a cl- questionable case, but Gloucester betrays Edgar uh, on very scanty evidence and also um, committed adultery and for several years didn't really acknowledge his son and that's his punishment. That's why he's punished. And according that's, that's even mentioned specifically that he's one of the ones who's punished, but uh the the quote that comes to mind is from Edgar and he says, the gods are just and our pleasant vices make instruments to plague us. Um, and, uh, Albany says this judgment of heaven, that is the death of both of the sisters, Goneril and Regan, that makes us tremble, touches us not with pity because Goneril and Regan deserve to die. Um, now then, does Lear deserve to die? I sort of half mentioned, yes, there's an account that you could say he does. He destroys his kingdom, right? Like it's left in shambles when he dies. And Cordelia, does she deserve to die? That is a complicated question. Maybe some of these people didn't deserve to die, but still deserve punishment. But just as a symbolic matter, if you want to say that all the people who die at the end of this play are being punished for something injustice. Uh-huh then you could say Cordelia is being punished for imprudence and Lear is being punished for uh, something like um, irascibility, incontinence, and imprudence. Um, Obvious what what the sister is being punished for. Obvious what Cornwall would be punished for. Obvious what Edmund would be punished for. Kent is a curious case uh kent seems in a certain way we talked about his him as a very interesting character and how he seems really interested in trying to help the both he has a love for Lear, but he seems like he's interested in trying to help the regime that he he loves his country but he ends the play by uh writing a suicide note um he's asked to be king he's he's asked uh by Albany, Albany. It sounds like he's going to abdicate, right? Or or maybe that they're going to split it up in three again. And Albany says, "Kent and Edgar, you're going to help me rule. You're going to be the two rulers." Edgar doesn't say no, but Kent says, "Sorry, can't rule. Got to kill myself." Um, in a in different words, uh, Kent says, "I have a journey, sir, shortly to go. My master calls me. I must not say no." It has this beautiful, uh, resonance to it, and that he loves Lear, but also. Isn't that wrong? Like, doesn't the nation need him? And isn't hasn't he proven that he has these these political skills and this keen view? And apparently, he's just going to kill himself because Lear is dead. Uh, that that seems wrong to me. And so, in a way, we're starting to we can see Kent's uh, foolishness, and he's going to be his own punisher. Uh, that he's he's going to he's going to be the hand of justice for himself. And then the only person who is wronged. And is in the wrong right. Edgar was imprudent himself, but he returns, learns his lesson, seeks forgiveness and to be better, and to help people, and to become a statesman, and to stand above his former station. And it seems as if immediately accepts the throne that's offered him. Uh the very final lines of the player, Edgar's. The weight of this sad time we must obey, speak what we feel, not what we ought to say the oldest hath born most. We that are young shall never see so much nor live so long. He doesn't say anything about whether he's going to rule or not, but he speaks already in very high rhetoric uh, about how we're entering a period of mourning as a country. Mm -hmm. Um, Anyway, so all this is to say, I do do think that there's a way to read this as a morality play. And uh, the question that Lear asks, is there no justice in this world? well, this is not a very long period of time we can surmise in this play. Let's even just say it's a year or two years. That's not that long. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, and that's just trying to account for travel and, you know, France is mustering troops and convincing to make a plan to come over and take over England. And Lear's going back and forth between the different homes. And then he's on the Heath and there, he goes back and forth between his daughter's home and Gloucester's home and all these different places. Right. So it's, conceivable that there's a long time between all of this stuff let's just say it's a year or two it's okay to be sad or frustrated that things don't come to fruition but uh oh dear i guess i'm about to say the (laughs) the arc of history is long but it bends toward justice (laughs) right like if justice is real if there is natural justice in the world Uh um, why should you assume that it's going to be carried out tomorrow Uh-huh. or even the next day? Uh Anyway, that, so, so that's, that's uh, my, my little final word on scene five or act five that I wanted to get in.
0: Huh? Wow. Man, I also want to end on your note, but maybe I can raise a couple questions without having a clear sense of exactly how things wind up like because so I take your point I don't know so so it's an interesting argument that natural justice finds its expression at the end of the play and then it might be read as a morality play and then I think you proposed something like this that okay, does everybody who dies at the end of the play deserve to die? Well, I think you were saying some of them do, like Goneril and Regan, like probably. Like maybe maybe their, <laughs> their vices were so considerable that that's the proper way for them to end. But then it was like a question like, well, surely Cordelia made a mistake at the beginning of the play. So, so then it, it seemed to me like you were saying that death at the end of the play is almost like a proxy for punishment.
1: Is that fair? Yes, yes, I think that's right. If because, especially with Cordelia, and so I guess the way to yeah, yeah, let me let me clarify that point. Cordelia, I think you, I think you and I agreed it's it's possible to read her not as purely in the right.
2: Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Um,
1: and given that Shakespeare may be hinting at that by having her die at the end of the play. Now, this play has been said to have a a drastic dramatic flaw by killing Cordelia and that the play would be fine if Lear died, Cordelia was left, France, for some reason, is out of the picture, Cordelia marries Edgar. That's what should happen. It should be a tragic comedy. That's how it should work. Um, mm-hmm. But if you read it in these moral terms, Shakespeare wants you to ask the question, what is Cordelia being punished for? Because everyone who dies in that scene is being punished for something.
0: Mm-hmm. Right. Okay, so, so it makes sense to me that he could be saying they should all be punished for something, but, and, and maybe there's like a sense in which like metaphors can limp a little bit and it, like a metaphor can't quite be carried out in the way that we'd like it to, in a certain sense that just like, if you try to say, so, so for saying some, so if it's the case that death is in a certain sense, equivalent to punishment, and you can say that Goneril and Regan did things that were wrong. They were worse than what Cordelia did, surely. But nevertheless, Cordelia is not simply pure or innocent. And she could have conducted herself better in act one, scene one. Because there it seems like she's unwilling to say anything that's untrue, almost. Like, well, yeah, dad, I love you as much as I'm supposed to. No more, no less. Uh, My sisters are flatterers. Because, like, why do they have husbands if if you're like their one and only, you know, pole star or something like that? By their speeches, like their deeds contradict their speeches. Therefore, anyway, there's there's a lot to say about that. But then she helps herself to maybe some exaggerations later in the play, and so she can't said to be pure. And there, there there's more to say about her, but I guess maybe I have I have trouble or at least questions in saying that the play resolves itself. Or that like natural justice is carried out in each case. Like that, it's almost like I want the punishments to correspond a little bit more to the misdeeds if we're going to call it natural justice. If like Goneril Goneril and Regan are not simply evil, they're not only malicious, but they're pretty evil. (laughs) Like they're willing to like say yes to a lot of evil things. And so it does seem like they're just, but like, why would the punishment be the same? It seems to me that Goneril and Regan are certainly worse. Than Cordelia.
1: Oh, unquestionably. And that, that to me, I do find that to be, you, you could describe that as a dramatic flaw or something.
0: Well, I don't even know if it's a dramatic flaw necessarily. I mean, well, cause, cause it could be the case that, I mean, and again, like I, I don't understand the play well enough to like really say anything with conviction about it's like final teaching, but if Cordelia and Regan are worse, morally speaking, in a very clear and manifest way to you and I, and probably to just about every reader of King Lear, and yet Cordelia and Goneril and Regan all receive the same punishment, isn't that to say that the play presents justice is at least somewhat capricious in this life? I mean, mm. yeah. like some something i think about like in comparison with this is something like i, I don't really want to talk about this book at, at all for more than like 30 seconds but like in beowulf you kind of have like a pagan cosmos and a christian cosmos but it's like the danes in that play as grendel is attacking them over the course of 12 years that's when the danes suddenly at least briefly a segment of their population turn back to the pagan gods briefly because it's almost like in that moment, they're like, man, I really wish I had a God with teeth that was like helping us right now. Whereas like in a Christian cosmos, and, and in a certain sense, King Lear is also a fractured cosmos, just like Beowulf, that um, it's set in a time where there are gods. But as you brought out very clearly in earlier talks, like the Ten Commandments and other Christian sentiments intrude is maybe too strong of a word. But like if, if it's a pagan cosmos, it's striking that Christian elements are introduced into it. Right. Um, it seems to me that like Christianity can endure injustice in this life, insofar as there's an eternal life waiting after this, with a loving Creator who can adjudicate these things afterwards in a way that we want. Like we really, it's like we want there to be correspondence in this life, but it seems like a Christian cosmos can tolerate injustice in this life, precisely because justice and mercy, we be meted out like in the next, I don't know. Anyway, at any rate, it's just, I, well, maybe I'll just leave it at that in sort of like saying that the natural justice reading could run into trouble if, or to the extent that the same punishments are doled out to unequal parties or something like that in a way that points to the capriciousness of justice in this life. And but that statement itself wouldn't even be enough to disqualify a Christian reading of the play. Mm-hmm. At the same time, that it wouldn't necessarily confirm it. So I, so I'm, but maybe yeah, that I'll I'll hold off or like that. I don't know if you have anything in response or, or something I like wanna,
1: that. I just want to venture one small thing. Um, the there's a famous verse in the New Testament: "The wages of sin is death." Mm-hmm. Um. In a way, uh, it could also be read, you want justice? I'll give you justice. This is what justice looks like. (laughs) It's it's not always pretty. It's not always going to be what you want, uh, (laughs) especially when you probably need a touch of um, the the speech on mercy from the Merchant of Venice if we're going to be doling out justice in this way. But... (laughs) if all we're seeking is justice in a certain way, it might end up starting to look like this because justice is not merciful and is blind. It is a, it is a scale. And if in the scale you're found wanting, there's going to be a punishment and it might not be the punishment that either the person seeking to punish someone or the person who's getting punished would expect. Mm -hmm. So there's, there's a sense of that as well. As you say, it may feel capricious, but it also could just be that it could be for the best that there's not the justice that we think of as justice in this life, because it might not look how you expect. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, that that's interesting. That's, that's helpful to think about. Um, well, I think that I don't, myself have anything that I could say with any great level of coherence about the play. Like I think I have new thoughts in light of our conversation, but I don't have a uh, strongly convicted closing thoughts <laughs> to bring out at this moment. Is there anything that you would like to end with?
1: Um, I'll just say reading King Lear for this this uh, series of, of recordings that we've done was probably like my sixth or seventh time reading it. And I'm reading it again right now for, for another setting. Mm-hmm. And there's, this is, this is one of those plays, there are certain plays that like, th- there's always going to be details you're not going to find when you're dealing with a writer of the height of a, Plato or a Shakespeare, there's always going to be th- more to find out. Right? Mm-hmm. Only only the writer or the god who inspired them can really tell you fully what's going on in it. And so there's always the there's always more lessons to uncover and there's always more to find. But King Lear seems to have more nooks and crannies than more than many of the other plays. Mm-hmm. And what I'm pulling from it, the more that I read it is that I need to keep reading it. <laughs> right. And, and uh, I don't want to be, I don't want to be too on brand and I don't want to be too trite, but I don't have, I don't have a final answer on the teaching of King Lear either, except that uh, I feel like there is a lot more for me to get from it. And I only after doing this and talking about it for, you know, we've, spent about an hour and a half per uh, per episode for, for all of these hours that we've, we've done this Mm -hmm. Uh, what's it? seven and a half hours that we've done this. Right. I only feel like I need to read it more and I feel like there's more to find out and I need to keep discussing it with friends and I need to keep searching through it because the things that we've come to in studying this together and recording this have been very valuable, and I wouldn't have learned them otherwise. And so, uh, take this as my, as I say, I don't want to be too on brand, but take this as my typical exhortation. Uh, if you're listening to this and you have read King Lear, maybe you should read it again. If you're listening this and you've never read King Lear, you should stop listening to us and go read King Lear because that's where the real wisdom is.
0: Right. Yeah. Well, if the brain is good, then uh, it should be uh, brought out and restated. And and I agree. Like I I have the same sentiment that now that we've discussed King Lear for over seven hours, I'm like now ready to reread King Lear Um, and like and and go back through and try to like sort out some of the uh, questions that we've raised and I'll have a chance to read it in a different setting as well in the near future. So we may have occasion to talk about it, whether recorded or not um, in the near future. Um, And I look forward to that. So if you want to uh, find a nice foundation for friendships, or if you want to understand your own life better, uh, or if you want to understand Western civilization better, you should read uh, Shakespeare and you should read King Lear. And this has been been, uh, a great joy for myself.
1: Me as well. Amen to all of that.
0: Yes. All right. Well, thank you, Bolingbrook. Uh Bolingbrook and Brian Cerberus Wilson are out.